All right, Richard, thank you for joining me once again on the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm excited to talk about this movie and other movies, because as you know, my personal research, and I believe yours, veered off into at least one or two other, I don't know if they're dead ends or uh, cul-de-sacs or freeways of thought and expression. I guess we'll find out in the course of the next hour. Oh, very exciting. Uh, before I jump in, I wanted to ask you a somewhat convoluted question, which I think will tip my hand a bit as to my take on the Warriors, but I'm more interested to hear your take on it. So I'm going to ask you this question. Are you prepared for a question? Lay it on me. I would put this film in the category of films that are not objectively good in air quotes. And I mean that in the simple definition of the term good, as I would apply it to movies being constructed with a baseline acceptable level of plot, characterization, screenwriting, casting, acting, directing, cinematography, editing, scoring, production design, et cetera. Some films become cult classics without necessarily ticking all or even some of those boxes. I think of movies that I've done on the podcast like Zardoz or Phantasm, to name two films that, while definitely redolent of their own charms, uh, are not objectively good movies in the way I think most film fans would would say something is good. And I want to be clear by saying anything can be subjectively good, okay? But I do think objective goodness can be a baseline that that like-minded cinasts might agree upon. There are films like The Thing, which objectively does tick all of those boxes I mentioned and also has become a cult classic. So my question to you, Richard, is which boxes would you say the Warriors ticks and which boxes do you think it leaves unticked? Well, it's a complicated question because there tends to be a distinction between movies that are great and movies that are entertainments. It's the same. You would find the same distinctions being made in in literature or theater. And we have to approach the Warriors um, with a certain amount of, uh, for me, it's a lot, there's a lot of nostalgia involved and where I'm drawing my appreciation for this film. Is it because I want to like the movie or is it because it's truly great? Mm -hmm. In terms of writing and story, you know, it's not Citizen Kane, but it's not just a pure sort of action thing either. Um, there's a lot going on here artistically that we can talk about and enjoy without it necessarily being, you know, among the greatest movies ever made. It's okay to just like it. Absolutely. I agree with that, but you still have not answered my question, which is given what you just said being true, which of those boxes, plot, characterization, casting, acting, directing, cinematography, editing, scoring, production design, et cetera, do you think the Warriors ticks? Okay. I like, and I have to remember the whole list. <laughs> I like the cinematography. I like the score. I do like the writing. I think there's a lot of subtleties in the writing, which we can get into. The acting isn't necessarily great, um, but it doesn't bother me either. What else is on the list? You know, all the basics that make up movies. 
editing, production design. I think the production, the production design and the, 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 uh, production design as far as what they're pulling off uh, as a movie that's taking place outside at night. Mm-hmm. Um, it ticks off that box for me. The, uh, the, the costumes I think are while theatrical and silly on the one hand, they're also kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it ticks off a lot of the boxes that you, that you went through there. Again, you could probably find comparisons to other movies that are regarded higher, but it it accomplishes a lot as, as far as um, uh, you know hitting the uh, all the areas in which I appreciate a truly good film. Yeah, it's funny because you know it's such a thing that when you sit down to watch it, or at least when I I guess I should say when I sit down to watch it, you know, part of me is completely able to turn off my critical mind and just let a film happen to me, no matter how many times I've seen it. And I can enjoy it on its own terms, whatever those terms may be. The Warriors is such an interesting movie because it has stood the test of time where so many films don't. Yet, it's interesting to me that when you look at it, again, I'm going to use the term objectively, When you look at it objectively, like it has deficiencies in the script. It has deficiencies in the casting. It has deficiencies in the acting. Uh, I agree with you. The music, the cinematography is uniformly excellent. I think the directing choices are excellent that Walter Hill made. And the thing that I can plug into and enjoy about the Warriors now is the style. The style that the Warriors has, has it has in spades. And to your point, I think that is in part things like the costumes, the wardrobe, uh, the fact that it was shot at night in New York City, which is such an impossible thing to try and even attempt to pull off as they all learned as they were trying to make the film. That I, in watching it, it's so ripe for a remake to me because some of the things that they just didn't have the budget or the time to get right, or the experience, you could say, I think if you did them again and you got those things right, you could make a very compelling movie, but it may be impossible to separate this from late seventies, New York city. That's true. And it seems like that in, you know, when you look into the making of this film, that there was such a confluence of uh, accidents and improvisations around, uh, you know, some original text that to, Find that lightning in a bottle again would be really difficult. Have you read the um, the Saul Hurok book? I did. I read that too, and it was so different than I was expecting. I don't know what I was expecting. I guess I was expecting the movie in a book. Right. Well, the movie is so centered around kind of presenting all of these gangs and the you know the gang identification, whether it be you know what they're wearing or what makeup they're wearing, uh, you know, to go out and rumble at night. And you're, if you, if you know the movie first and then you go back to the book, um, that, you know, the sort, the sort of the, you know, the, the warring gang cultures is it's there kind of at the beginning, um, when the gangs are first kind of introduced going into the, the conclave and there's a big, uh, confrontation with what would later become the orphans in the movie. But after that, uh, it's really more of um, the book itself is, you know, is sort of 
you know, following these these characters as anti-heroes through the night and not so much kind of on a the idea of, uh, you know, scenes of uh, conflict like we get with the film. Yeah, I mean, the, the movie, you know, it's in, in Hollywood sense kind of probably smartly boils down this book, which really is kind of a very 60s mashup of extremely um, probably Marxist politics and and violence, urban decay and violence. The the movie, obviously, the movie producer who I think saw the paperback on a, you know, one of those uh, those spinning, spinning paperback <laughs> spinning things. paperback things that we used to have, you know, smartly sort of realized that these the story of a gang trying to get from point A to point B while being pursued and hunted by not only the police but other rival gangs was such a great premise for a movie, and it is. But the book is so dark and uh, pulls no punches and goes to some very very dark and interesting places. I'm not saying that, that that book would be filmable, but it would almost be an art film or at least a more interesting take on urban decay and how that seeps into people, families raised within that environment. Because that's kind of what Saul Hirok, I think, was after in the book, which he wrote, I believe, in the mid or the late 60s. Right. And the book also, at least in the second half, really focuses on one character. Right. Uh, and that that could be a compelling movie, um, you know, as a, as a you know, as a as a, a single protagonist driven story. And as we talked about um, it, another film that that I'm reminded of when I watched The Warriors again, because it also was filmed at night in New York City, albeit for a very different slice of life, is Scorsese's After Hours which similarly was a low budget run and gun, no permitted feature film that was taking place on the streets of lower Manhattan and similarly had to adapt uh, the entire film crew to the nocturnal rhythm of shooting at night, which is its own, its own beast in New York city. I think Walter Hill said in one interview, I read that none of them had anticipated not being New Yorkers that quote unquote, the night in New York is not quite as long as they would have thought as like Hollywood people. You know, it's like you, people are not off the streets maybe until 4 a.m. Right. And everyone starts coming on the streets at 5 a.m. So it really didn't present this kind of open field canvas that I think they thought. Actually, I think The Warriors was maybe more permitted, more official of a film than After Hours was. I don't know a lot about the making of After Hours, but you do have a really good point there about them, these um, this Hollywood crew making a film in New York, New York in the summertime, not anticipating not only their control of the streets at certain hours, but that the sun wasn't going to set till 8.30 or 9 o'clock and then it was going to come, come up at 5. And so where they would anticipate, you know, a Hollywood shooting day was 12 hours or something like that, they were getting four. Right. The, the other thing I'm interested in the Warriors is I think you have two catchphrases which have become iconic from the film. And maybe at least in the case of maybe both of them, I think, have almost transcended the film to whereas I think sometimes I hear people reference them and I'm not sure they really know that they come from the Warriors. I'm referring, of course, to. Now, there ain't but 20,000 police in the whole town. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? 
can you dig it? And <laughs> warriors come out and play. Warriors come out to play. Warriors come out to play. Warriors come out to play. Although, isn't there something where it doesn't actually say come out and play or did you well, read Well, if you watch the movie, Jason, it's come out to play <laughs> for one thing. Okay. And yes, uh, it certainly has been picked up upon. Uh, I was reading about the, um, what is it? Twisted Sister. Um, right, right. The, but even in the lyric to that, uh, come out and play, they modify the the line of dialogue from the film. But I suppose... Uh, what happened was that D. Snyder was inspired by that film when he when he wrote the Twisted Sister song. Why do you think those two lines became iconic? I'm going to ask about "Can You Dig It?" is strange because 19 by 1978, nobody is saying "Can You Dig It?" That's such a 60sism, right? Yet somehow it works as an anachronism. It, it completely fits the vibe of the Conclave. Yeah, I read about that too. A lot of people saying that they felt like "Can You Dig It" was uh, was out of time, but it worked for me. Sort of given the 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 vibe of the movie, to me, it didn't seem all that far removed uh, from the way that characters talked in the movie. I uh, I like that. I like that. Can you dig it? Uh, but it definitely has taken on a life of its own. The Come out to play. Warriors come out to play is a, is a different animal because it's more than just a line. You know, it's more than mm -hmm. a line of dialogue. It's it's the the closing of the film. It's the sound cue. It's the way that that guy is maniacally saying it over and over again in his sort of best, you know, Stella Adler method acting. Um, I mean, it's something that just really gets drilled into your brain. And it's at the end of the movie. And that and David Patrick Kelly is so good. I mean, right. it's so, such a genuinely out of left field, creepy. I had I haven't seen this movie in so long that I forgot about the bottles. So at first, Hill has the sound of the bottles overlaying this long, long shot, long before you ever arrive at the car in which David Patrick Kelly's character is sitting with three soda bottles on his fingers, making the sound you've heard for long enough to wonder, what the hell is that sound? Yep. And then you have just, as you said, his method, his method face and, and dedication to it. It's a genuinely creepy moment. And again, part of like the atmosphere that I think Walter Hill really just nailed and created. He, he talks a lot about kind of wanting it to be sort of a fantasy. Like he did, he wasn't going for gritty realism. He wanted it to be really comic book, you know, in a way where, you know, you have the shot where all the, all the warriors are lined up in a row so you can see each of their faces. Um, right. The Mount Rushmore of gangs. The Mount Rushmore of gangs. So there's so many interesting kind of, I mean, that the Wonder Wheel shot, the first shot in the film is such a great shot for such a simple shot. Like the eye that he had for, I'm not even going to call it period detail because it, it is so 70s in its way, but it's also not. I guess that's probably part of maybe the timelessness. I want to talk, you know, at some length about the film The Wanderers, which 
was shot the same summer in New York City and is mentioned in the making of book that you recommended about the Warriors is mentioned a lot because two films shooting in the same city at the same time in 1978, when not a lot of people were probably trying to shoot films in New York City, was a big deal because cast members, actors, resources, production resources kind of had to be fought for by each production. And various actors were up for parts in one or the other film. And they were doing that kind of thing that they do on talk shows, which is like, well, if you if you book a part on The Warriors, don't bother, you know, coming in and reading for something on The Wanderers. But in a way, The Wanderers is more of a time, even though it's set not in the 70s. But that's more of a period film than The Warriors feels like, because The Warriors is set in such a kind of unrealistic place that it it doesn't feel dated per se. Yeah, I mean, I think that. I mean, we can talk a little bit about what we liked or didn't like about the Wanderers, um, but there's definitely a sense of that. You know, this is a movie. This it's there's some okay boomerism kind of going on in that movie, from my point of view. You know, sort of like very nostalgic about a particular time. There is an interesting overlap here, not only in the fact that we have two movies about New York gangs made the same year at the same time based on books Mm -hmm. that were about stories of New York gangs in the Bronx in the (laughs) sixties. Yeah. We have the, the, you know, the assonance of the warriors and the wanderers, but because the director and the creatives of the warriors were in a situation where interestingly, based on their budget, that they felt that they had to make a different kind of movie than maybe was depicted in that novel that they ended up quite accidentally, or I don't know, it, it, it was a happy accident that they ended up with something that was feeling a little more timeless than maybe the wanderers, which mm-hmm. again kind of comes out as a nostalgia movie. Mm-hmm. I kind of, one other thing I want to mention here, just in terms of happy accidents, because you mentioned it is in this this scene with um, the villain, uh, Luther, yeah, uh, where he's clanging those bottles together. And we have that great situation with the way it's cut together with where you hear the sound before you realize what it is that you hear. And the fact that that all came together while everybody was kind of standing around, standing around and figuring out what the scene was going to be. Um, David Patrick Kelly was going up to the director and saying, well, what if I take these two, uh, I think he had dead pigeons. He says, what if I take these two dead pigeons I found over on the beach and kind of knock them together? And, uh, and Walter Hill was like, ah, that's not, that's not quite what I want. And then he found these, you said they were soda bottles. I'm not sure if they were soda bottles or, or, or tiny beer bottles that he found and started clanging them together. And then he was drawing upon the actor that is drawing upon something that happened in his real life, which is he had a creepy neighbor who used to say his name all the time whenever he was going into his apartment. That's right. Like, hey, That's right. David. <laughs> so he borrowed again, using his uh, sort of method mm-hmm. techniques, he borrowed from all that. And they came up with that right on the spot. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is the way that this, that the best parts of this movie kind of fall mm-hmm. together um, often as, uh, improvised and accidental absolutely uh, because they don't necessarily have a very good script to work with no and they lost their leading man seven weeks into filming and had to pivot which is another story but i think david right. patrick kelly is the best pure actor in the film 
I think Kelly Van Valkenburg is very good. Uh, Mercedes Rule is already good in her one scene as a, you know, undercover cop on a park bench. Most of the other warriors, I would not give even mediocre acting marks to because they're just not really up to it, particularly. I guess it's Michael Beck who sort of takes center stage uh, once once the film lost. It's leading man. It's leading man in Tom G. Waits, not Tom Waits. Right. Uh, <laughs> but Thomas G. Waits was supposed to be, who is it, the Fox? Is he supposed to be? Yeah, he's Fox. He's Fox, who, who we don't see in the movie at all now? No, he's in the movie. He, uh, you is, remember he the who, that? is he the one who gets killed in front of the train? Yeah, he's the one who falls into the uh, into the train track. They had oh, to okay. use a, they had to use a stunt actor in that entire scene after uh, Thomas Waits got uh, canned from the movie. But so if he dies, maybe I don't know, thirty forty five minutes in, and then the other actors have to step in. And in fact, they were rewriting the movie on the fly at that point, also. Well, to your point, I think that the the train track death was one of those things that came up not as an accident per se, but because they needed some way to get rid of this character, the actor whom by his own admission was in, in that, at that point, sort of a, a budding young alcoholic and shot his mouth off and had far too many opinions and just became an unbearable thorn in the paw of director Walter Hill. And he eventually got pulled out of the paw and cast off. And as such, I think that scene goes to such an unexpected place because the movie has been sort of doesn't really have a doesn't really have a nihilistic sense of violence compared to other films of its time at all really it's very innocent violence uh almost comically you know balletic more than anything else it's not it's not brutal hand to hand combat in fact i would say that the the fight scenes in the wanderers uh, are far more viscerally spooky and creepy and weird than they are in the warriors. But when he fights with the cop and then uh, gets thrown in front of a train, it's so jarring. It's a jarring moment because it's by far the most violent thing to happen in the film. Uh, I couldn't even really remember the Fox character, to be honest with you. I, I, I think I'd read the book this time before. I'm sorry. I mean, I read the making of the film book that you recommended before I watched it. So I, I was actually kind of attuned to, to like, oh, let's see who this guy is that's cut out. But I think what they must have done is gone back and reoriented perhaps some of the footage that had been shot to sort of feature Beck's swan character more prominently than the fox after the fact. So I guess the fox is like one of the guys, but I didn't even really notice him uh, until I realized too late, like, wait, which one was he? I don't even remember him in the movie other than getting thrown in front of a train. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting it's just interesting from, you know, perspective of, you know, you and I having the experience to, you know, to work on, to work on films before, to even imagine a situation where you're like, you know what, we're going to keep this guy in the first half hour of the film, but we're going to switch protagonists and love interests. <laughs> and love interests. Yeah, right. romantic interests to somebody else. And well, I'm, and that's and, a big, unfortunately, you know, all due respect to uh, Michael Beck. But he's just not up to the task. I mean, he's not a leading man. He doesn't have the acting chops at that stage of his career to really pull off anything more than sort of a very wooden, one-dimensional performance. And Kelly Van Valkenburg's um, character is, she's a good actor, so she's giving something in their scenes. And he just has nothing to give her 
And, and I guess they're trying to kind of make that like his damage is such that he can't, you know, break this steely facade, but it unfortunately just results in the fact that there's just no chemistry or spark whatsoever between the two of them. I want to roll back for just a second on you talking about uh, great performances in this movie, because I want to know where you stand on Roger Hill as the Cyrus character. Love Roger Hill. I think you he know? did a fantastic job. And I don't even think he was an actor before this. I think he this was an been- actor, but he was a last minute uh, yeah. cast. They had somebody else uh, who didn't show up. Again, this is sort of the that's right. Uh, the, you know the the nature, uh, the you know the luck of this film was that they hired somebody else to play the Cyrus character uh, who just disappeared, and then they came up with this Roger Hill, who was also an actor, and he didn't necessarily have a great career other than I think maybe he was on a soap opera for a uh, mm-hmm. hundred years after this. But this performance, it's one of those things where we're talking about: is this a good movie or is this a terrible movie? And you watch this guy and you see, it's, you know, he is he great or awful? It could be both. No, he's great. I'm going to say he's great. In fact, the whole movie really up through the conclave and the shooting of Cyrus, I think is great. Like all of that is very propulsively directed and very cinematic. And you have incredible imagery. Like I mentioned, that shot of the Wonder Wheel at night in Coney Island. Uh, the conclave is really amazingly filmed and and really, really well written. And and his his speech is particularly well written and he's charismatic enough to pull it off. And you just have the visual of all these different gangs that you haven't even met yet, kind of all mishmashed into that that uh, natural amphitheater. I think all the way up through that and the and the chaos and the choreography of the chaos after his shooting. I think I'm very with the film all the way through that. And that's all really, really well done and very inventive. And then I think it's unfortunately from that point forward, kind of once we're in the you know, who shot Cyrus moment with the, uh, what are they called? The, the riffs. Yes. Uh, when, once we get to the riffs and then sort of the pursuit of the wanderers to me, that's where the film sort of loses something. And then I think from that point forward, it's a curiosity to me, but it, but the, the rest of the film never really coalesces around any other performance. And I, maybe that's because I don't know how Thomas G Waits would have been, had he been our leading man, presumably he is more of a leading man and more of an actor. Motion than... detected at the front door. Oh, sorry. Oh, I think the warriors are over to visit you. <laughs> warriors depicted, de- uh, detected at the front door. <laughs> Haven't times changed so much since 1978? So I don't know if, I don't know if Thomas, Thomas Waits would have, would have been enough of an actor. He certainly has had a, a very rich and rewarding career. I mean, he's not a movie star, but he certainly made a living as an actor. He's done a lot of stage work. He worked with Pacino on stage and in films for quite a bit. He's taught acting. He was a playwright. Like, presumably, he would perhaps have been enough as a personality to follow the experience of the of the adventure through, and he would have had greater chemistry with the Deborah Van Valkenburg character than than Michael Beck's Swan, who's never intended to be the lead of the movie. He's intended to be one of the guys. Yeah, we'll never really know exactly what happened there, but there's some indication if you go back and kind of look at the backstory on this, that the character wasn't working either. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's hard to say whether we would have got something better with him and Deborah Van Valkenburg or not, Uh, but uh, it was just not meant to be. 
I think there's other good good actors in in the Warriors uh, main cast. I particularly thought that uh, Marcelino Sanchez as Rembrandt brings a sensitivity to things, which I was interested in. But unfortunately, the film doesn't really go there with the character in the way that I think it wants to wink at you that I think here's a gay gang member. I mean, he certainly presented that way. And I think in the making of book, his sister says that was his understanding, even though it wasn't overtly stated. That would have been really interesting to me if the movie had gone there. The, the farthest they go there is that when the Wanderers get sort of duped by the Lizzie's, not the Lezzie's, mind you, the Lizzie's into their little clubhouse and sort of trapped, you know, he's the, he's the only member of the gang who is not succumbing to the charms of these sirens. So I think it's pretty clear that that's kind of what they were going for. But again, the movie kind of pulls a punch there to me. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I mean, you could probably find some other late 70s movies where gay characters are uh, are a little more present. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking of, um, what's the Al Pacino movie? Cruising. Yes. But I don't know if it would have created a, a distraction in the movie. But as you say, I think that it's intended and it's, it does play out a little bit in that scene where where he is avoiding too much contact with the with the with the women uh, who are trying to sex these guys up and is he avoiding it because he senses the danger or is he avoiding it because his his character isn't interested yeah um, uh, now I do want to also while we're on the topic of Marcelo Sanchez is to take the opportunity here to talk about the three two one contact cinematic universe <laughs> <laughs> now you're speaking my language show starts in less than an hour. Bloodhound Detective Agency, whenever there's trouble, we're there on the double. Oh, Mr. Bloodhound, thank you for the tickets. Yeah, Vicky's getting them now. A surprise, sir? Keep us on our toes. Have a good flight, Mr. Bloodhound. We'd better step on it. Because this is the second time I've been a guest on this show talking about an actor who was one of the members of the Bloodhound Gang. That's right, the Bloodhound Gang. But I know that's something that we're both very fond of. Absolutely. I really liked uh, Marcelo, uh, Marcelo uh, Sanchez's role in The Warriors. Um, and it's something sad that he passed away, I don't know, maybe six years after this. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, it's he seemed like a pretty a pretty promising actor, particularly in the way that he that he had a really good look. Absolutely, and I think at the time too, you know, he 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 kind of could have been one of those right actor, right time guys who I think other films would would come out subsequent to this that perhaps tackle some of the more you know gritty, realistic things going on in New York City. And I could have seen him, you know, you could see him in fame, right? You could see him as the talented kid from a tough part of town whose whose talent is enough to kind of uh, get him out of his circumstances, but that perhaps, you know, keeps him keeps him attached to the neighborhood in some way. He, he had a lot of promise and he's he's one of the more, he's certainly one of the more visually interesting warriors and his face conveys a lot of wounded pride and emotion in a film that doesn't really have a lot of room for that in the male characters. So as such, I think he's, he's one of those guys that really stands out. Whereas for much of the rest of them, you know, it's kind of like the village people. I mean, it's pretty much, it's pretty much costume deep. Yes. 
I want I don't I don't want to get too far ahead here, but as long as you're on the topic of costume deep, I'm curious to to hear your take a little bit about these other gangs um, and the idea that we're you know we're presenting this kind of fantasy dangerous New York in which gangs go out in uh, top hats and mime makeup or dress loosely like the New York Yankees. Um, I was looking at some reviews of the movie at the time. Somebody, uh, I think it was David Denby, who uh, described the Warriors as mock furious. My notes here, uh, I made a note. I said, top hats, practical, question mark? <laughs> um, because, you know, if you're going to be a fighting gang, uh, I'm not sure that, you know, wearing top hats and face paint is is maybe the way you want to present yourself. However. Here's my take on the costumes. I mean, I love them. I like them for what they are. But I wish that the filmmakers, and particularly Walter Hill, because I kind of think this kind of has to be laid at his feet based on, based at least on the making of book, which I thought did a pretty good job of illustrating and talking about from a variety of perspectives, some of the production difficulties that occurred on the set. But I thought the stunt coordinator did a very good job of explaining kind of exactly what he did uh, with the fight scenes and also navigating some of the stunt union guys that he was handed as part of the production who he had to kind of get rid of in his telling because they weren't really capable of doing what West Coast stunt guys were capable of doing in fight scenes. And I actually think the fight scenes, such as they are, are generally pretty interesting and very well staged. And with the subway bathroom fight scene, particularly being a brilliantly staged weird fight. I'll call it a weird fight because I think fights that take place in unexpected or tight spaces like a subway bathroom is, is a weird fight. And I think that's done very, very well and compellingly. But the costumes for me, while interesting to look at and certainly always, you know, gives you something visually varied on screen. I, I just wish that they'd taken the time to have the fighting styles match the costumes, uh, which aside from some martial arts stuff and the, you know, the Furies using baseball bats since they're dressed like New York Yankees baseball players, you know, I didn't really notice that anyone's fighting style matched their costume per se. And I thought that was kind of a missed opportunity. I'm trying to think of uh, another, well, trying to think of, uh, well, we have the orphans. They don't really fight. We have the the Lizzies who uh, shoot guns inside their clubhouse. <laughs> what was the other? Oh, I guess. Yeah, there's the bathroom scene. I don't know what the uh, I, I like, like the, the whole the, fighting in the bathroom scene. The yeah. the there. What are they called? The sharks, punks, sharks or punks. They don't. Their overalls don't necessarily say anything to me, so I don't necessarily. It's hard to tie together their their fighting abilities necessarily with what they represent visually. Well, I mean, I think the, the, so. The costumes were designed by Bobby Mannix, and she did it. She definitely did an amazing job with what she was presented. Uh, I just think it's 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 a it's kind of a fundamental flaw for me of the film in that. I think they're presented more for, again, this kind of comic, like, it, like put it this way, you know, th this was turned into a series of graphic novels where all that stuff works a hell of a lot better on a page than it kind of does in the movie. Because Walter Hill, I love, first of all, his use of transitional wipes on screen. I love that. That's a very 
comic book thing, right? Where he he's wiping off an image with a diagonal line and he's wiping on the next image, uh, trailing the line. He does that a bunch in the movie and that gives it kind of this comic book panel feel. So I appreciate that the costumes kind of come from that, from that ethos, but again, I go, I go back to the wanderers. I mean, I think that the gangs, the ga- the way the gangs are differentiated in the wanderers is, is more compelling and accurate. And the the weird gang that that shows up on the football field at the end of the Wanderers is way more creepy and freaky than anything in the Warriors to me, because it's a match between what they're wearing, what they look like, and how they fight. Uh, so it's just a flaw in the in the Warriors to me. I mean, I just think there's no real peril that these guys actually face on this supposed life or death journey uh, across you know Manhattan to return to Coney Island. And there's a couple fights, right? And there's like a creepy, weird thing where they where they pick up um, what's her name, Mercy, Mercy, Denver Mercy. Yeah. Um, you know, the, but it just it seems like given the the rush to uh, green light and script and produce the film and get it released because I think it went from like June of '78 and it was in the theaters like early 1979. So there wasn't a lot of time spent on it. I get that. And I think the Wanderers was a bigger budget film. It had more of a studio involvement. So the, 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 the costumes for me are kind of silly now, even though I, you know, you can go to the New York city Halloween parade and probably you could pick out more wander, more warriors uh, costumes, you know, in 2022 than than any other film, maybe, you know, I think it's still a popular Halloween costume look mm-hmm. and the warriors themselves, you know, are kind of hamstrung because they don't really have the most badass look of any of the gangs in the film. Like the vests are cool, I guess, but you know, is it practical to wear a native American headdress in a gang fight? I don't know. I don't think any of it's practical. Again, <laughs> I think this goes back to what we were kind of talking about. At the beginning is that you have to, if you you have to come at this movie with a certain yes uh, uh, ability to just accept its its surrealism and its fantasy elements. Mm-hmm. If you don't like that, then you're not going to like this movie. I watched it with my with my husband who had never seen it before, and when we got to the scene with the um, with the baseball furies and that uh, that yeah. greatly uh, choreographed fight, yeah, uh, he was like. This is so lame. <laughs> and I was like, fuck you. It's like, great. What are you talking about? <laughs> now, what was he reacting to? Like, what, what doesn't work for him? Is this, is this part of his, like, he just needs stuff to work in real time in order to escape into it? I, yeah, I think that the, the, non, the non-naturalism of it was just something that he could not buy off in, buy off mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because he's a huge fan of all of the, you know, uh, Marvel and DC comic book movies, which I really, which I don't really care for. For the yeah, most I don't part. care for either. I mean, I would watch this six times on Sunday before I would watch any Marvel superhero movie other than maybe Spider-Man's. The movie, I mean, they buy subway tokens, Rick, which in the book is actually explained in an interesting way. Uh, and I think they hint at it a little bit in the movie, but you know, in the book, one of the cool things that Saul Hirock does is he shows how each of these gangs had a, 
I don't like remember a, the terminology, a, but a it's treasurer or bursar. Yeah, yeah, like you're the procurer. You're the there's one guy who carries the boombox. There's one guy who carries the money and parcels it out as the gang needs it. It's just inadvertently funny to see the supposedly badass gang stop to buy a packet of subway tokens so they don't just hop the turnstile. Now, I guess you could defend that and say, well, they can't afford the extra heat by jumping a turnstile and attracting law enforcement. But it's just still kind of funny that you're supposed to be this outlaw gang and you have one of your members buy a little baggie of subway tokens. I thought that was funny. I, another interesting parallel and you know, to the Wanderers. Now, full confession, I love Richard Price. He's one of my favorite writers. I've read all his books. Interestingly, you mentioned this a little bit, Richard Price's book, The Wanderers, which is sort of a semi-autobiographical collection, more of vignettes than it is a cohesive novel, but it comes from his experience growing up, as you said, in the Bronx, I believe in the 50s, more so than the 60s. But the book is set, I mean, the movie is set sort of in the 60s, early 60s around the JFK assassination, which is featured prominently. But Price's book, similar to Saul Hurok's book of the Warriors, is much darker and much more complicated and much more unsettling than both movie adaptations end up being. Both books filmed more truthfully would, would I think, be more interesting films. The Wanderers, I think, is a little underrated and is a little casually dismissed as sort of a kind of 50s doo-wop kind of white culture celebration. I think that's a very kind of 2020 way to sort of fashionably look down the nose at the Wanderers. But I think when you watch the movie, even though it's not as deep and impressively kind of nuanced as I think Price's book is, it's actually like a really weird Hollywood movie that has a very, to me, satisfying ending, even though it has its own comic book aspects like the Baldies and uh, some other things. But some of the things that Richard Price is doing in the book that do get translated to the screen, like they're trying to talk about, you know, the way race was played out in New York City impoverished neighborhoods in the in the late 50s and early 60s. And and they do that to some extent. You know, they 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 address those things. And our lead protagonist in that in that movie's case, you have Ken Wall, who is cast. That's his first movie. He's kind of plucked from nowhere to star in a movie, which is a very difficult thing to do. And I think that's apparent on screen in Ken Wall's performance in The Wanderers. He's a very raw actor. He's not yet really in control of his physicality, but he's undeniably got something. But he's the main character, and yet the movie ends, and everyone else is kind of going off and getting better and doing different things and escaping, but he's trapped. That's how the book, that's how the movie kind of ends, which is, I think, a brave kind of choice in its own way, even though it sort of feels unsatisfying maybe as the finish of a film. But I was kind of taken by both of these movies as different sides of a similar coin. And the fact that they both come from these books that are much darker than the movies that they were made, that, that were made of them. I, I like the movie The Wanderers more than I like the movie The Warriors. I think it's interesting. As a movie, as a I movie. Think, I think it's interesting that the cast of The Wanderers is more up to the task of yes. what they're doing than necessarily in The Warriors. Yes. But the Wanderers for me, as you mentioned, you know, it comes from, a novel that's has is built around a series of, of of vignettes, and the movie feels again. I'm talking about the Wanderers here, mm -hmm. like too many stories and too many characters piled on top of each other. Mm -hmm. Nothing ever gets the full treatment. Nothing, to me, 
gets enough attention to um, strike me mm-hmm. uh, as good stories. Nothing gets finished. And maybe it's better in the book. Uh, but in this case, I feel like the movie is wandering not only from one story to an, to the next, but also just wandering in tone. Um, I was really thrown off by those scenes where all of a sudden um, we run into the duck boys who were mm-hmm. some kind of Ducky middle-aged boys. Irish gang and a some phantasmic part part of the Bronx where there's always a low fog hanging. Mm-hmm. Um, Love that. Uh, I think that there are, there are scenes in this movie that work very well. I love in the wanderers. I love the wanderers party that they mm-hmm. go to with the dancing and the music, yes. and the, the, um, the strip poker. Yeah. I think all, I think that there are little sections of that where the actors, the actors really come together and they're given good material. I just think as a whole movie, it feels, it feels like a mess to me. You might think that the warriors is kind of a mess because it's kind of made up on the fly, but the through line of the warriors is easier for me to follow than the wanderers. Well, it's easier um, to follow because there's just not that much going on. I mean, well, I agree. I agree, I agree. With, I agree with you. I, the, Wander, the Wanderers is maybe a bit overstuffed and doesn't really know, you know, ultimately what it wants to be. But I think the difference that you're kind of hinting at is really a very simple difference. Okay, Walter Hill versus Philip Kaufman at the time. Philip Kaufman being the director of The Wanderers and a guy who has had a very successful and interesting film directing career, including. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1970s version, also a full cast and crew episode for you listeners out there. Of course, The Right Stuff, probably one of my top five favorite films of all time, on and on. So at at this time, you know, Walter Hill had only directed two movies in 1978. He directed Hard Times with Bronson and uh, what's his name? Who's the silver haired guy? Coburn. Yes, Coburn. Uh, Coburn and Bronson, and he directed The Driver with Ryan O'Neill. But Philip Kaufman had directed five movies by this point, including Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So Philip Kaufman is clearly the much more uh, experienced and effective director. And I think it's a much more Hollywood undertaking. And I think some of the subversive elements probably that are very present in the book, because I think the book is much more, I mean, it's a Richard Price book, so it's much more subversive. It has much more kind of realism and kind of complicated realism going on in it, even though it's very, I think it's his very first book. Then the movie sort of ends up having, and maybe there was some fight between the studio and the filmmakers in terms of what they wanted to put in the film versus what they couldn't. But I agree with you that in in general, uh, they're both kind of, they're both not, you know, A-level a material but as a film and as someone who wants to appreciate good acting and interesting directing, uh, you know, you've got Karen Allen, you've got, you've got Linda Mans. I mean, that's, even though she's just kind of a throwaway character in Pee Wee in The Wanderers, I find her so compelling and such an interesting 70s persona that anything with her, I'm just interested in. Um, even though it has a lot of the same kind of problems, like, you know, some of the other Wanderers are not great actors and are put into situations that they just can't quite act their way out of. Uh, so this may be my Richard Price fandom showing. I'm not sure. If I had to watch one, I'd probably watch The Wanderers over again, just because uh, I just I find it more interesting. Although when it ended, how do you not have a post credit scene with the Baldies going into the Marines? Come on, 
it's like, I'm like, I remember that in my mind and it didn't even happen in the movie. Yeah. Again, it's an, <laughs> it's another story within the film that just sort of evaporates. I mean, it's just, reason, you, you want to see, reason. you know, terror <laughs> and the rest of the people, the rest of the Baldies like being screamed at by Arlie Ermey. I mean, how do you not film that? I mean, I, I swear I've seen that. Like I, I, maybe I just made that up in my head. Uh, uh, or maybe it's on some sort of like, you know, I, I, there's probably not a criterion edition of either of these films, but <laughs> maybe it exists there. So, but yeah, I, I, I take know, your they, point. They have a similarity in that. I mean, they're both kind of, they're both not, they're both not fully baked. I think the wanderers is trying to do more. So as such, even though it's not fully baked, it has a little bit more for me to chew on. Whereas the warriors is really not trying to do very much at all. And since it doesn't do that very well, it, it, it loses my interest kind of, as I said, after that conclave and shooting part. I would agree with you hundred percent that both films are not fully baked. I tend to think of films in, in terms of, would I recommend this to anybody else? Would I recommend this mm. to a general audience? Mm-hmm. That's the tool that I use, which, and versus would I watch this again? Um, I would have a hard time, um, recommending the wanderers to people i think it's it's too meandering to for to expect people to hang with it whereas i feel the water the warriors it's a it's a you know tight 88 minutes it's not that complicated and it's it's compelling to watch from beginning to end in my opinion well i guess if you're friends with richard brown people you should feel glad that he's never going to really challenge your emotional or intellectual limits Hey, watch this. It's 88 minutes. It doesn't really go anywhere and you're not really going to be asked to do much. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> There's a lot going on. What, in the Warriors? Yes. Is there really? Is there really a lot going on? Yes, we haven't even talked about the whole Xenophon's Anabasis oh, yeah. uh, uh, well. background of the novel and then the movie. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that what we have here in the Warriors is kind of the, you know, the three thematic pillars of the movie which are as we said comic books and Mm -hmm. then the greek combat Mm -hmm. combat epic that this story is derived from and then the sci-fi element which is what keeps the movie fresh today true uh versus the wanderers which to me uh feels kind of old and lame well, it is old and lame in the sense that it's looking at an old and lame slice of, you know, Bronx Italian culture. So it doesn't, so, it, so it's going to probably, particularly now, you can look at that film and notice the punches it's pulling a hell of a lot more than you can notice the punches that the Warriors pulls because the Warriors doesn't even try to be, doesn't even try to address anything realistic that's going on in its, in the culture it's set in. You know, I mean, at least for The Wanderers, I will give it period music, period detail. And there's a verisimilitude to living in the Bronx of its time where the complexities of day-to-day life are at least represented and the sort of familial ways in which these kids get fucked up and end up screwing up their own lives is represented. Whereas in The Warriors, yes, it's if you look at it as a science fiction movie that's not really taking place in 1978 New York, it's a hell of a lot easier just to sort of sign off on it. But 1978 New York is actually a pretty interesting time and a pretty 
you know, there's the rise of hip hop culture and you have all these other kinds of things going on. You know, Ed Koch is the mayor. Uh, New York is still in a state of kind of heightened urban decay. And there are the, the, the sort of blight that is really horrifically represented in Hurok's book of the Warriors is really not at all in, in is, it's not represented or envisioned on screen in the Warriors. So so, yes, it's like the combination of the score Walter Hill's kind of just brilliant aesthetic as a director and the cinematographer. I think it's Laszlo Kovacs is a cinematographer. Do I have that right? Uh, it's, it's close. It's Andrew Laszlo. Oh, Andrew Laszlo. Where did I get that? Andrew from? Laszlo is the, uh, the oh. DP. On okay. the well, I got Warriors. the Laszlo right. Yeah. I mean, I think his cinematography and the score particularly together uh, just really create a great aesthetic in in and on screen in the warriors and it's that aesthetic that i think propels the fandom forward because other than that you know it doesn't unlike the book again it, it's not really about anything i mean this whole anabasis thing i, I don't know I, I think even saul hurok is like yeah i wasn't even really aware of that when i was writing it or maybe he he was somewhat aware of it but that's the kind of thing i think gets said a lot about a movie to sort of lend it a little bit more than maybe it actually has I mean, I guess you could draw parallels to the to the perilous journey, the the unit stranded out amongst you know enemy territory, uh, like they are in that John Ford movie you sent me, right? The Lost Patrol. The Lost Patrol, yeah, very filmically interesting movie. The filmic language is so different and interesting. You know the way the way things are. Of course, you're watching John Ford, so it's you're, you're you are watching a master of the form, even in 1942 or whenever that was made. Well, it's actually things, before that, isn't it? Like 37 I or something? Think it's 34. 34. Jesus yeah. Christ. So yeah. One of uh, the things I that uh, I thought you uh, could appreciate being in uh, being in, in film and media production was the fact that that film, I don't want to go too down too far into something else here, but that the Lost Patrol in 1934 was shot. You know, this is before location mm -hmm. filming took off in the 1940s that thing is shot entirely in the california desert and you can't see a structure a cactus a tumbleweed nothing yeah. in these uh you know these wide panning shots of the desert it's fantastic to think about the the how they're they work to control the the environment of that film at that stage of filmmaking in 1934. It's one of the things I really liked about it. Yeah. And I think you're, it's such a, it's an interesting film to co-watch with the warriors because, or the wanderers for that matter, because you have that, you have a filmmaker putting a group of men in a perilous situation and allowing their personalities to dictate what happens to them or what doesn't happen to them. And the parallels between a movie made in, what did you say it was, 1937, 1934? 1934. 1934. I mean, it's incredible. Like, you're also watching the development of filmic language and the ways stories are told. And so there's as many elements you could point to where things haven't changed that much. And there are certain universal things that, you know, films and film actors and film directors and film editors and film cinematographers do when setting up shots or scenes or constructing them or editing them. And then there's also just an entire world in which they're so completely different. I mean, look at the beginning of the, the, the Lost Patrol where, you know, you have to have this large on-screen crawl to set up Mesopotamia and, the, at World War One or what, you know what I mean? You have like all this information to give the viewers so they can, just so they can like understand 
where they are and what's going on. And think about how different that is uh, 50 years later in cinema or, you know, 40 years later for that matter, 30, 40 years later, which is not a lot of time when you can just kind of start something and whether it's uh, learned experience from the viewer who has a wider frame of reference to sort of understand what a movie is and where it's placed and also is capable of absorbing more media about a film, you know, even then, even in the seventies and in the eighties, like you read more about a movie before you went and saw it perhaps, or you at least, you know, watched trailers on television to sort of set a film in a time and a place, but they didn't really have that in 1934. So he has to do a lot of this stuff to sort of just get you to the desert and understand uh, what's going on. But it made me want to watch more films from the thirties, you know, because I'm kind of fascinated by, as you said, how they do these things with such limited resources and abilities. And I'm also just a sucker for like, studio system pros, you know, actors, directors, just like delivering these turns of characters that are so great. I, I really liked it. Yeah, it's interesting. That, I mean, obviously there are some underlying themes in The Lost Patrol and in The Wanderers as far as stories about brotherhood, sense of place, belonging. You can you can see some dotted lines between these two movies, but in the way that a movie like The Wanderers is made, you know, according to mm, certain conventions of a way that a story is supposed to be told, um, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And then you compare that back to 1934 when, as you, as you said, we're really creating the way that film is going to be different from literature and creating a, a, a literateness of film. You know, uh, going back to Andrew Laszlo, uh, just to tie it all back for you, Rick, did you know that he was also the cinematographer of Newsies? <laughs> I did not. I mean, maybe you can, is it possible for you to briefly explain to our listeners this special place that Newsies occupies in your life or would it just take too long? Well, I think we can go <laughs> back and talk some more about the underlying themes of <laughs> brotherhood sense of place belonging mm -hmm. it's all there it's all there okay he also uh is the cinematographer of star trek five didn't know that either the final frontier uh i'm just looking at his credits here first blood which is the only good rambo film just to state declaratively the truth um so I still find it fascinating that the Warriors occupies such pop cultural space in a way, because unlike other things that occupy similar space, it's just doesn't really have the merits to do it, but yet it does. So I think that's interesting. And I think it is that combination of what you said of this science fiction take on the material, the futuristic score, which still feels kind of cool and great and eerie. Thank you. 
uh, and the visuals, but the cinematographer and and Walter Hill's kind of vision for things. Um, it's just funny to me that it's that it's what it is because when you watch it, I probably would err on the side of uh, your husband, Doctor C, and just sort of laugh along. I more laugh at it than I'm engaged by it. I would expect if you were to pull a cross section of fans of the Warriors, be they teenagers who watched it in the late 1970s or went to midnight movies in the 80s and 90s or even kids who might be um, watching it today, that you're going to find a sort of similar sense of an interest in stories about justice and morality that may be a little simplified. You know, to me, there's a thing about the Warriors that kind of appeals to my 14 year old brain mm-hmm. that I've never, uh, that I've never outgrown. Well, it's because despite, it's a comic book. Yeah, exactly. Same but thing I, as a comic book. Right. But I think that, I think that, that part of the reason why the warriors continues to be interesting to people is because of that. There's a comic book level, um, story about justice and morality that people pick that young people pick up pick up on i assume largely boys at a stage in their life where they have they've become cynical about the uh the authority that surrounds them whether it's their parents or their school or their church or whatever and they are attracted to the group mentalities of Mm -hmm. these gangs which Mm -hmm. in the case of the warriors is kind of a very safe dangerousness to uh to uh wrap your arms around it's at a point when you you're at a stage in your life where you can see that your own world is kind of a a fucked up place if you're 14 or 15 years old you haven't quite crossed over into understanding that all of the world outside of you is also fucked up Mm -hmm. and you believe that there again there are certain uh uh, moralities which are going to play out over time as you become an adult, and that may not necessarily be true, IRL. But at the time, I think when young people are being captured by this movie, it does a really good job of depicting that fantasy, and it's something that hangs that hangs with people when they get to see this at when they're young people and they take it with them. And I think it can, it can address them in the same way today as it did back in 1979. I think you're totally right. I think that's brilliantly stated. I think, and you mentioned this in the, in the prep that uh, that trailer, that, that iconic warriors trailer is so good and is such a main line of everything. It's, it's the perfect distillation of everything you said. And, you know, it's two minutes and 30 seconds running time with that voiceover and that, that creepy, gravelly, the that gravelly. Famous gravelly voice. I don't, I, who is that guy? Is that I don't a, know. I tried to look him up. a real person? It's a real person, but I couldn't find his name. Uh, the synth score used there uh, is from a famous movie. I can't remember what it is, but it's not, it's not the music from the Warriors. It's from something else. Yeah, for uh, some reason they didn't use the Barry Devorzon Tangerine Dream esque music. Well, they, I think they used uh, Tangerine Dream from from maybe Michael Mann's Thief or something. Oh, okay. Um, but that that trailer, I think, is is so, you know, is what you just said in a two minute thirty version. These are the armies of the night. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? 
Furies. The Boppers. The Hi-Hats. The Lizzies. The Turnbull ACs. The Gramercy Riffs. Riffs! And these are the Warriors. We know about the Warriors. They're a heavy outfit. They're from Coney Island. Warriors? You guys are the big dudes, huh? Now, they're in the Bronx. We're going back. 27 miles behind enemy lines. It's the only choice we got. Between them and safety stand 20,000 cops and 100,000 sworn enemies. I want them all. I want all the warriors. got one way out. They've got one chance. They've got one night. The Warriors. Here's another interesting take I'm going to drop on you uh, in our ongoing Wanderers v. Warriors uh, conversation. It occurred to me while you were talking so ably about what it is that the Warriors contains to get under the skin of, yes, largely teenage boys, I would say. The the tone of the approach, the, the view, if you will, that the film has of the gangs themselves. In the Warriors, it's pretty essentially skin deep. So it's basically like tough badasses, as you say, who band together out of some loosely ascribed circumstances that you can kind of grok as a viewer, but we don't go into any deep detail about home life or anything of that sort. But we just can understand intuitively through the way the characters are presented that, you know, banding together is essential for survival, especially when traveling cross neighborhood. And so they're presented as badasses of a variety of stripes. In The Wanderers, because it's a probably because it's a semi-autobiographical novel from Richard Price, it has a distance in its its view of the gangs and the gang culture. And I believe that all the scenes of kind of like, even when the Wanderers are aggregating and walking down the street to the great song, The Wanderer from Dion, um, they're not as cool as they think they are. And the movie kind of knows that. And that's a that's a line that I think the Wanderers film treads very successfully is that uh, you still get to see that these gangs are banded together for the same protective reasons. Um, Yet, like they're not really cool the way they think they are. And the movie's aware of that because it's Richard Price writing, you know, in the 70s about something that happened to him in the late 50s, early 60s. So it has the benefit of hindsight. And I think the poignancy that can exist in some of the Wanderer storylines is that benefit of hindsight, kind of like, wow, if we knew then what we know now type stuff. Whereas the Warriors doesn't ask that and it's not doing the same thing. It's really a comic book movie that is presenting this band of characters on these journeys and they are going to intersect and battle. And these are our heroes. And at the end of the film, they are going to effectively wash up on the shore in Coney Island um, 
And it's almost jarring when we come into daylight. You don't even realize you've spent, you know, 84 minutes in in nighttime, right? Until they emerge at the end of the film in daylight, Coney Island. And um, and then it kind of the, the film reaches its conclusion. And uh, I thought that was a really nice move. Really uh, I nice. don't know if you caught in the in the uh, making of book that the the Sean Egan uh, book that they had actually shot a bunch of stuff in the that was supposed to be the day of the conclave. And then they went back and reshot it with the same actors uh, either on the uh, on the platform, uh, the, the subway platform or on the subway itself, um, because they wanted to create an atmosphere that from the beginning that this was all happening at night and mm-hmm. that the uh, the the final scene takes place when they get back to Coney Island kind of kind of at uh, dawn and there's a line where Michael Beck's character says something like so this is what we yeah. fought all night over I love that yeah. yeah yeah I love that it contributes a bit of a sense of ennui to things um, and it, it, it kind of like the end of the wanderers it, it ends on a sort of um I mean, it ends on a more uplifting note because now we sort of are presented with like Swan and Mercy getting together and walking off into the sunset. You know, terrifying guy gets his comeuppance being surrounded by the rifts. You know, his lie that that the warriors were the ones who killed Cyrus is is revealed to be the lie it always was. And he's descended upon and engulfed in this, you know, this this scrum of rifts. So it is a satisfying ending. But, you know, go, going back to the point you were saying before, like, yeah, I, I kind of wish it leaned more. And I think Walter Hill wanted to do this. I think he wanted to lean more. I think he even wanted to use like overt comic book overlay, like uh, dialogue or something, or he wanted to have like information on the screen and sort of a comic book panel in, in terms of of, of uh, presenting information. And I think he was just overruled by the studio, but. Right. Well, did you watch the, the, uh, the 2005 director's version? I think I did. I mean, I bought, okay. the, I bought the, well, the DVD. Version, yeah. So they, when it was, they did, uh, Walter Hill got a hold of the movie for a 2005 version in which they uh, put in all these rotoscoped um, kind of uh, chapter changes where oh, I didn't watch that. No. Oh yeah. It's pretty cool. Actually. Oh, I would like to see that. Yeah. yeah I, I, you know, it, it's, it's fun enough, even if you don't watch the whole thing over again, just to go back and watch the way that these comic book panels, uh, mm-hmm. animations are inserted into the film. So do you think he was right about that? Like that would have been cool. That wouldn't have been out of place. I can't say because all I watched was this 2005 no. version a couple times and it had been so long since I saw, um, the version without the comic book panels that I was like, that's really cool. I don't remember that at all. And then I only found out on the back end that there was something that had been added years later. Yeah. I guess like in the comic book sense, that's why I kind of wanted them just to lean into the differences between the gangs more like like you would in a comic book, you know, like in 1978, we really have to have the Lizzie's. We can't just change that one vowel to be what everyone kind of intends it to be. Like that's more interesting to me if they just went for it. It's not, you know, it's another thing where I think maybe the the studio mm-hmm. uh, had something to say about it. It's not mentioned specifically in the making of book, but I think that it was another thing that they needed to um, uh, keep mm-hmm. uh, uh, kind of uh, a little bit subtext. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
again, subtext in a comic book movie. I, I, I prefer overt, just put it on screen, you know, but it's enduring. I mean, it's definitely, it's in Walter Hill's oeuvre, you know, it's probably the thing he's most well known for uh, until you kind of go super cinast and sort of get into the fact that he, you know, and his writing partner contributed an early and essential uh, rewrite of Alien uh, before Ridley Scott directed it and and all that kind of sturm und drang that happened over the screenplay credit and whether they actually, you know, changed or contributed to it, uh, all of which you can hear about in our full cast and crew Alien episode. You know, Walter Hill has a thing that he does. And this these are the early nascent days of that. And what's what's interesting to watch and see in the film and to to live in that vibe because it is such a vibe. And I think that's the thing that's my 10 year old would say it's got vibe. Uh, the Wanderers doesn't really have vibe the way the Warriors does, uh, but they're both interesting companions in a way. Almost if if you watched, um, you need to watch something like I think a couple of the gang documentaries I sent you from the same era, like Flying Cut Sleeves is a good example of real gang culture in the Bronx and Queens and New York City in the mid seventies. Um, and it, it's informative to watch a documentary like that, I think, because uh, those are really people that are in gangs. And at least in the ones featured there, you actually have these incredibly charismatic gang leaders who are kind of media savvy for their time and camera ready and in, and able to intellectualize kind of what their gang is all about. Uh, and of course, at the time when sort of doing social good was part of uh was part of gang culture anew, you know, much in the the sort of Black Panther kind of style of the 60s. I think you had a wave in New York City gangs in the mid-70s and late 70s where uh, trying to do good in the community was a way to offset perhaps some of the other things they were doing that weren't necessarily good for the community. But taken together as a trio, you'd have a good, interesting introduction to the space. Yeah, I, I recommend, I did watch The Flying Cut Sleeves, which by the way, is uh, the whole thing is free on uh, YouTube mm -hmm. as a documentary, it's not, you know, it's very low budget, so it's yes. not a great made film, but, yes. uh, it's, a, there are some really compelling characters in it. It's very interesting that, you know, this is, again, this is taking place, uh, in the seventies, mostly, uh, around gang life in the Bronx. And I was fascinated by the fact that you had all of these named groups that were sort of piled on top of each mm -hmm. other sometimes it was kind of hard to figure out well I, you know mm -hmm. they were they had these gang alliances and then there was a slightly higher gang and a slightly you know it was mm -hmm. this sort of like funnel uh effect uh, yeah. of who it was that you belonged to or who it was right. that your block belonged to yeah um, to the point that it gets confusing but not in a bad way it's it's confusing in an interesting way of where you know where we are in the gang culture of this movie flying cut sleeves ah i'm benji they call me black, black benji. benji man black, yeah, black benji, benji. Black president benji. of savage nomads yeah hey, savage nomads <laughs> tough gang very so yeah, very much so how about you what's your name Blackie. Blackie? And what's the name of your guy? Savage Skulls. Savage Skulls. Any of the guys belong to both groups? No, just two different cliques. It's one clique, but two different names. Do you help each other out? Yeah, definitely. Like, we went to go down against these 
bachelors, bachelors. And they didn't show up, so we had to go down their way. And like, they still didn't show up. They was hiding out, you know, they was scared. It's the regular punk thing, you know? You know, after we came back, the cops tried to bust a couple of the guys, you know? But then we all stuck up, you know, and we threw a couple of gas bombs at them just to make it look good, you know? And so they started panicking and whatnot. So they let the guys go. And so then Blackie went up to them with a, he had a gun on him. They didn't want to serve They knew he was packing the pieces, big old 38 Magnum sticking out. Like they want to make it a racial problem, you know? So we didn't want that, you know? So I jumped in, I put him for my boy, because he's a black brother. So we made an unracial problem. Everything came down, man. I also wanted to ask you, if you know this song um, that's in the movie, uh, The Ghetto Brothers Power? Oh, yeah. I that mean, is an awesome song. Oh, absolutely. I'm the same as you. When I, when I first watched that, when I first watched it, my mind was blown. I was like, wait, 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 wait. What? Because what, what, what happens is you're watching this documentary and it, you know, and it, it alights upon, you know, two or three different uh, gang members or gang leaders that this, this teacher had encountered in the seventies as part of her work in the school community. And then 20 years later, she's going back and interviewing them and kind of seeing where they are. And during the, um, this, the, the section on a gang called the ghetto brothers, which is a Latin American gang, I believe from the Bronx, they play this song and you see these gang members that you've just seen footage of like playing these instruments and rocking out like the most funky ass seventies. Where the ghetto brothers. I mean, it is so good. And you're just like, what the fuck is that? So then, yeah. So then it sends you down the road and you look at this up and you're like, Oh wait, they had a band. They released a really successful like Afro Latin funk album, <laughs> which is, which the movie kind of doesn't, like, you know, I would be stopping down there and like going into detail and like looking for studio photos if, if I was the director, but they have a different agenda. I get it. Um, but fascinating. Ahora. This is Ghetto Brother Power, baby. From the Bronx. Ghetto Brothers, brothers. Hey, listen to that bass, man. That's dope. It's a really good song. Uh, so yeah, I think that's like, for me, you know, you know me, like I'm a wormhole guy. So if I get into like gang, New York City gang culture in the 70s, I'm going to get into it. And to, to your point, there's a shot in the film in uh, Flying Cut Sleeves where they they pan across a huge list of gangs. And to your point, it's it's like 30 or 40 or 50 different gang names. And we're only talking about like in the Bronx, <laughs> you know, this is not like across all five boroughs per se. Um, and each one, as you kind of learn in the film, you know, has of course, its own sort of language or or nomenclature or, or uh, uh, you know, logos and, and patches and vests and all this kind of stuff. Like, that's what I really get into. And I get that the Warriors is not trying to do that in the same way and probably would not be the would not be the vibey movie that it remains had it done that. The only real choice is to have the New York Yankees with the face paint and the top hats. And this, the roller skating uh, Mork from Orcs, you know, 
who do manage to be creepy despite their overalls and roller skates and more from orc hair. I do find that creepy. Like that's a great Walter Hill setup where the guy is roller skating down the subway platforms uh, in pursuit of our two main characters at that point. I think that's such a great use of the environment. I don't know if you caught it or not. Uh, you know, if you went deep enough into the uh, the uh, uh, the full cast and crew, the guy who is the on roller skates in the Warriors, and remember, as you as as you said a little bit earlier, these two films were being made at the same time and competing for young actors. Um, the guy is uh, who's on roller skates is also one of the Duck Boys in. The Wanderers. He's the guy who uh, tears the car aerial uh, off oh. uh, off Perry's car. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so he violated the code. Yeah, and got he was cast one of the, in both films. Yeah, so he was cast in both films, and so was the the guy. I don't know if you call him the leader or not, but the the main uh, baseball furies guy with the kind of a long yes, black yes. hair who gets into the fight with um, with. Uh, um snow no uh, uh, no not snow swan uh, uh, not swan ajax ajax the one yeah. who fights with ajax he's also supposedly somewhere in the wanderers although uh, i'd have to go back and look more closely to figure out uh if he was a duck boy or something else that's funny i, I found the duck boys very scary I find them scary. I just felt like they were in a different movie. They were. I mean, but, you know, that's the stylized, that's that's that movie's version of the stylized thing that we're praising in The Warriors. And, I guess so. But and, that, and, I know, know the scene, this is exactly the problem with <laughs> with The Wanderers is that that's that that rumble scene where they all show up at the football game is so well done. Yeah. While also being completely inconsistent with the rest of the movie. It just doesn't make any sense. The football game itself to me doesn't make any sense uh, uh, as far as that these these two gangs are also part time football players in some sort of well. Let me defend that. Let me defend that. Just, let, let me defend that historically because there is truth to that, and that remains and probably remains true in New York City gang culture, where where there are uh, football matches, basketball matches between gangs between blocks and between neighborhoods that, that continues to this day. I mean, yeah, but those read about the, well, sure. Because that's, that's a part of gang culture in the fifties and sixties. That was true. They did play sporting matches to settle differences in different ways than they did when, when fighting and the fighting, you know, was really was less like gang fighting in the eighties turned more into the the obtaining and securing of drug territory than it was a uh, preservation mode for survival when traveling from your block to another neighborhood. So that's a different kind of mode. But certainly if you read about like crack gangs in the 80s and the 90s in New York City, there were huge football games and huge basketball games. There were uniforms printed. There were cheerleaders. There's that the whole stuff is actually, I think, taken completely from historic reality. So to me, that that's not jarring. Um, I, I guess if you, you know, and it's it's unreasonable to expect most movie viewers to have a working knowledge of, you know, New York City gang culture, if that's what's required to understand that scene. 
but I thought they did kind of a nice, neat job in sort of explaining that there's a football team and that they play other organized groups of young men, whether those are gangs or not, uh, and that this this football game becomes uh, a moment of unity between these two warring tribes when confronted by the creepy and monochromatic ducky boys. So we'll just have to agree to disagree on the Wanderers. Yeah, again, uh, it's not that I doubt the verisimilitude of it happening. I just don't, it doesn't, the movie doesn't work for me from from mm-hmm. one scene to the next. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, it's I, I don't position it as a great film, uh, but it's notable in it's notable in conjunction with the Warriors. It's notable to watch just to look at two films made at the same time, the same summer in New York City, uh, trying to do something similar, but in two vastly different ways. I think they're interesting companion pieces. I agree with that. And you have Linda me. Mance, who deserves her own full episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast, uh, might have to do that because I find her such a fascinating and interesting naturalistic to use Lee Wilkoff's comment on a recent uh, Instagram post I made with a photo of Linda Mance in the wanderers. And he just kind of hit the nail on the head with his, as he usually does with his comment about her acting. He said, when first seen in days of heaven, we were all caught off guard, off balance. Who is this person? What is this person? Where did she come from? A naturalness (laughs) that we all envied, a brief life and career we are inspired by somehow. I mean, that that says it all to me, you know? Um, Linda Mance is such a fascinating screen presence. And so just her own oasis, which if you watch out, there are so many movies, there are so many actors. Uh, Any movie that anyone is still watching from any era is notable by itself, right? It's, It's an accomplishment for for the warriors to have endured as it has given its humble origins, just as it is, you know, an actor like Linda Mance who made just a handful of these movies in the seventies and then kind of had a brief sort of, she appeared in a couple of films in the nineties and the two thousands before she unfortunately passed away a little bit too young, but such a fascinating screen presence who kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, Certainly days of heaven, you know, where, where, her, her she ends up becoming the narrator of this entire film after just being initially cast as like this very small part. A really interesting screen person, I think. Yeah, she um, she just died in 2020. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Love Linda Mans. Um, okay, Rick. Well, I think that's pretty much all I've got on the Warriors. Do you have any final thoughts? Um, I do think that um, that the Warriors, I, I, I'm, I'm most fascinated when it comes to the Warriors of the idea that the, the movie started with a lot of disabilities as far as its budget, mm-hmm. its content being questionable, mm-hmm. the way we went from a book with a lot of violence in, in it to a screenplay writer who then was sort of shut out of the process and then the thing having been been almost completely rewritten by the writer and director and the warriors should have died pretty quickly mm-hmm. uh, given all the circumstances around the way it was the way that it was made and the way that the studio treated it at the time that came out um and 
I'm really interested in the fact that there is a, a, a marriage here between the way it was produced and the way it was and what was produced mm -hmm. and the fact that the director had to make a decision where he said this movie is only going to work if we take the realism out mm -hmm. if we if we try to turn this into a real gangland picture people are going to laugh at us and so instead they decided we're going to we're going to stretch the limits of the realism here. And what they created was something that was, as I said before, a fantasy that generations of people could mm -hmm. buy into um, and even show to their, you know, their teenage kids as something that was, that's both rebellious and also kind of safe. It's just got all of these perfect elements that in my mind come together to make a really interesting film that you can watch again and again. Yeah. Just don't show it to your rational scientific doctor husband. Well, it's not <laughs> for everyone, but I would recommend it to anyone. Also, you know, what we should mention is it's also, I think probably, I, I don't know if it's the first movie that you can say this about, but it's certainly part of the lore of the film that when it was released, you had sort of a wave of hysteria over violence erupting in the theaters where this film was playing, uh, which Paramount sort of mishandled slash handled reasonably well, because of course it became, you know, something everyone had to see because of the threat of violence breaking out in the theater. Uh, much was made of it at the time, you know, but really what happened as I think Walter Hill says pretty succinctly and eloquently in a couple of things I read is, that yes, the movie was attractive to kids who were in gangs uh, in whatever city the thing was playing. And so of course they went and saw it. And because they went and saw it, they encountered each other and probably had some skirmishes and some dust-ups that they probably would have had anywhere had they happened to encounter each other. So it wasn't as if the movie itself was inciting any of this stuff, but it certainly became a bit of a publicity cause celeb, which I think has only probably helped the, the image of the film as sort of, to your point, if you want to appeal to teenage boys, I mean, it's dangerous, right? It was seen as dangerous. It was seen as uh, a movie you you couldn't see, right? You you couldn't go see it for a time. Uh, so I think that's part of the legend as well. Yeah, I think that's true. I I wanted to tell you a little bit of a uh, a story about my exposure to this movie, which was that when I was a kid, you know, say around nine or ten years old. Uh, my brother, Stephen, was about seven years older than me and was at a stage of his teenage life where he was getting to go see a lot of uh, a lot of these great movies, particularly, you know, at the midnight shows. He was seeing Halloween and The Warriors and Pink Floyd's The Wall. And he'd come back and he he could, you know, tick through these movies recount them to me on a scene by scene basis. <laughs> I don't know how much of it was he was was just had a great memory or how much of it he was sort of filling in the details in order to tell a great story. And I was not of an age where I could go see these movies. Again, I loved that Warriors trailer that used to come yeah. on TV. I was I was <laughs> I was um, obsessed with the idea of the sort of the, you know, the gang law and belongingness at a time before I could really go and find out what it was all about. And my brother would recount these movies to me and then I'd go around my friends and I would tell the story of the movie as my brother did, uh, maybe even lying a little bit that I had, uh, whether I had seen it or not. But it was fun 
when I did become, when I did get old enough to watch the movie on my own. In fact, I think I might even watch it on network TV the first mm-hmm. time that I saw it. But it was, you know, again, it's just illustrative of the fact that uh, it's something that could be handed from, uh, you know, one generation of teenager to the next. It's also interesting to think about the other movies that came out in 1978. And I wonder if this is a part of the Warriors endurance as well. I'm just looking through some popular 1978 movies. Uh, you have Pretty Baby, uh, the animated Ralph Bakshi, Lord of the Rings, Midnight Express, Cheech and Chong, Up in Smoke, Convoy, Every Which Way But Loose, the Clint Eastwood uh, orangutan fighting movie, uh, Grease, Halloween, Great Train Robbery, The Wiz, The Deer Hunter, Battlestar Galactica, Heaven Can Wait, Days of Heaven, featuring the aforementioned Linda Mann's narration, Animal House, The Last Waltz, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So it's 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 very different than most of those movies that I've mentioned, right? It's um, we're in a weird time in '78. It's it's post New Hollywood, and it's kind of pre what would happen to the industry in the '80s. And I think as such, a film like The Warriors still felt like a very outsider movie to go see at that time, even as they're sort of very mainstream films like The Deer Hunter that are operatic and epic on scale and epic in acting scope and in screenwriting and directing and sort of would become these talismanic touchstone films. But I think The Warriors feels still like kind of the the leather jacketed ne'er-do-well uh, sibling of the 1978 film scene. And that's maybe part of why it's endured as well. Yeah. Now I'm curious, cause I didn't look into this. We know that the story with the warriors was that once it came out and it ran into uh, real theater violence and then the controversy mm-hmm. of uh, when the studio pulled the movie out of the theaters or if they pulled it out. Yeah. Or even if they pulled it. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if the wanderers, we know it wasn't ultimately as successful box office wise as the warriors, but was the wanderers uh, either a party to or victim of this uh, gang violence in real life? I haven't read that. I haven't read that because, uh, you know, again, the wanderers is a nostalgia film and it's certainly positioned as that. Whereas the Warriors is like, snort your Coke, uh, drink your Jack Daniels, bring your, bring your, bring your knife or your gun and go to the movie theater. You okay. know, like it's, it's just a different crowd, I think. Um, but to your point about the success or not, um, interestingly, The Wanderers does have a 89% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes and The Warriors has an 87% rating just to point out okay. the box office is interesting. So the warriors box office is listed at $22.5 million on a budget of $4 million. And the wanderers is at the other thing. Well, while you're looking there that I, that I wanted to check out with you is if it's true that the wanderers was re-released into theaters in the nineties. And if you remember that, I don't remember that. So the Wanderers made $23 million, so just $500,000 more than the Warriors. Um, yes, okay. it was. Well, it was re-released in, in the, I want to say, the mid-90s. Is that what right. you mean? I thought I caught it this morning that it was yeah somewhere around 95 that the, uh, the studio put that movie back into movie theaters. 
Yeah, I think they did in like, I don't know why. That's such a weird thing. It, it was 1996, like coincidental with Ken Wall being in Wise Guy or something. Like, was he a star then anew? I don't like, think so. You'd still be, you know, 10 years after uh, Ken Wall's kind of disappearing from Hollywood. In 96? Yeah. You yeah. So Wise, Wise Guys was on maybe, you know, was all mid 80s. Well, just looking at Wikipedia, it says that the film's increasing popularity and cult status led to The Wanderers being given a theatrical re-release by Warner Brothers in 1996. I don't know if that's something that, I don't remember anything like that happening with other films in the 90s. Yeah, that's weird. I don't remember that either. Kaufman says it took a long time for the film to find an audience. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know what was behind that. I mean, it could be anything. You know, it could be that Kaufman was doing another film for Warner Brothers and as part of him being a hot property, perhaps because of something like the right stuff. He, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll agree to direct, you know, this movie for Warner brothers, but you need to re-release my film, the wanderers, because I never felt it got, you know, what it deserved. There, 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 there can be, and have been things like that behind business decisions. And maybe this is one of them. I'd have to look more into it, but that's interesting. You're right. I didn't, I didn't remember that. You know, can also be that as far as demographics were concerned, that maybe they were looking at uh, you know, the theater audience in the mid nineties were saying, you know, we're getting, a, we're selling a lot of tickets to people who are, you know, in their forties and fifties. And maybe this nostalgia piece is, can be something that's interesting to them that they missed when they were in their twenties. Could also be the rise of the Sopranos. 96. I don't know. Is that too early? I guess that's too early. Um. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. But, you know, like I said, for people looking for an interesting double feature, it won't take you very long. As Richard said, 88 minutes on the Warriors and it's not much more on the Wanderers. You'll certainly have a hell of a soundtrack on the Wanderers of period music that's very well used. Yeah, it is uh, great music. I'll, I'll, give, I'll, 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 uh, I'll second that. I mean, I, I just it, it, every time I hear songs like that, it just reminds me again, sort of what a phenomenal era of production music that was, you know, to hear just a song like The Wanderer is just so, so incredible and still is amazing. Um, right. So this is a point of order. It is an hour and 52 minutes. Mm, little long, Bill, little long. It little goes long. a little long. Goes and little I'm not long. so, I, you haven't commented on the verisimilitude of uh, Bob Dylan showing up at one of those famous <laughs> Rocks coffee houses. Well, I thought thought maybe I could get away without having to address that howler that appears. Okay, let me defend it. Um, A, one of the things that The Wanderers does effectively is you have to kind of look at it in the context of sort of when it's set, right? So it's supposed to be taking place in 1963, because we see the Kennedy assassination happen in real time. Right. So it has to be late 63 or 64 that we get to this uh, wedding scene or the. Correct. The, the bachelor party scene. The bachelor party. Yeah. And and I think that the Dylan, like, like a number one, Dylan allowed the song to be used, which I think is interesting unto itself. So you have the actual performance and the actual song. Now, of course, you have to. Sh- she, what, what happens is that the Karen Hill, uh, sorry, Karen Allen character who has this meet cute kind of moment uh, that sets up one of the dramatic interludes where, you know, the sensitive wanderer uh, is, thinks he's in love with her, but of course she and Ken wall have this undeniable bond and, you know, he's going, he gets, he gets his girlfriend Despy pregnant. Who's brilliant, by the way, she is one of the, she, she is 
note perfect in the wanderers the character of despy love her she is so good she is she's uh uh she does more with her she does more with more with her gum than any any line delivery you could want also by the way interesting note she would later go on speaking of the sopranos to be i believe mrs uh big pussy bump and sarah in the sopranos there you go uh anyway so the karen allen character is sort of uh you know comes from I guess, I don't know if she's supposed to be from the same neighborhood or a different neighborhood, but she, in, in the 1963 divide, she's kind of going to go on the folky side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the Ken Wall Wanderers character, he feels pulled to her and maybe to that side of things, but he's kind of mired and indeed traps himself in his own recurring kind of nightmare of, you know, uh, a, a neighborhood through impregnating his mobster mobster's daughter girlfriend despy who he then is going to marry and settle down with but the last scene of the movie is him leaving his bachelor party and thinking he sees this woman and indeed sees her she's uh somehow somehow i guess i should point out so they're in the bronx uh, are we supposed to believe Dylan is playing in the Bronx or does he follow That's her? That's what I'm the- asking you. <laughs> does he follow her all the way to the West Village? <laughs> I don't think he follows her by on foot all the way to Greenwich Village. Okay, well, Rick, it's a movie, okay? We have to make some adjustments for, uh, you know, maybe Dylan played a folk club in the Bronx. I don't know. I can't speak to that. Uh, but yes, we see sort of an actor who is miming along. We don't see him. Thankfully, we don't. Thankfully, they don't actually try to present someone. Like, it's just in a shadow. And you see the hair and the cigarette smoke. And you hear the actual Dylan song, The Times They Are Changing, which is really what the movie is all about. So to me, I actually think it's a poignant use of the song. It really illustrates the divide between the two characters. And I think it's a really surprising filmic choice for a mainstream movie of its time to have him give up and realize they're too different and it's not going to work. And he goes back desultorily to his bachelor party and his fate. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a downer ending. And as such, I dig it. Can you dig it? Yes, I can. (laughs) Can you count? (laughs) It didn't occur to me though, that I do think they even, I think they even use the name of like a famous folk club in the West village. So apparently he did follow her on foot from, Oh, okay. 156th Street down to the West Village in in 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Rick, here's what I would say about that. If you're putting those kinds of glasses on to pick a fight with the Wanderers, then you've really got to fight inside yourself. Again, I think that the Wanderers never really decides what kind of movie it wants to be. There's this element of it that, oh, well, this is a movie of the Wanderers, you know, is as you mentioned before, is the name of this famous Dion song. And so we're basically uh, after the fact saying, well, what if the, you know, what is the Wanderers about? What is the song about? You know, it's supposed to be inspired by the song, just as the movie itself is supposed to kind of be inspired by the rock and roll era. And then by the end of the movie, we have, you know, this Dylan silhouette in some kind of coffee house and, the what we're seeing is the end of an era, just mm-hmm. as Ken Wall's character uh, is transforming from his high school life as a, you know, a 35 year old senior or whatever into uh, becoming having, you know, forced into uh, adulthood. The times they are changing. Mm-hmm. I just feel like if the Wanderers is supposed to be a story about rock and roll and the music of the time, it ought to have 
settled into that. And instead, it kind of wanders in and out of that into a lot of other things. Well, it's not it's not at all a, a movie about the music of the time. It's not a rock and roll movie. It's it's exactly what it sets out to be, which is the story of this neighborhood and these guys, which is it's Richard Price's story. He grew up in that neighborhood and was connected to these characters. So the film, to me, the times they are changing, yes, for everybody but our main character. To me, that's a kind of brave and interesting choice for a movie to make. It's not as if he leaves behind, you know, the neighborhood and Despy and his his child and the 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 danger represented by her mobster father. It's not like he leaves that behind and goes into the folk club and sort of disappears into that life, which many people did and could have done at that time. To me, that would have been a cop out ending. But to have him kind of go back to this life, the times they are changing, but not for him. I think that's kind of interesting. And I think the movie succeeds, at least in that, in terms of its treatment of this Ken Wall character, who I, who I admit, he's not really a fully formed actor at this point. He's just raw kind of animal magnetism. You know, he has this look and he has a, a really interesting combination of kind of danger and warmth, uh, which is very unique. And you can see why he briefly had this moment uh, where he became, if not a star, at least a recognizable name and a somewhat bankable name in terms of his television work before whatever transpired to end his career, be it self-inflicted or otherwise. We talked about this, but I don't really know enough to even speculate here. But uh, he didn't really materialize as the star he perhaps felt like he might have become Right when you watch this film, which I think has to be taken of a piece with things that preceded it, like Saturday Night Fever. Um, you know, which I think maybe people thought they were getting when they greenlit uh, The Wanderers or maybe even when they greenlit The Warriors, you know. Uh, you do have this kind of outer borough, Tony Monero type that's coming into a vogue and at least a filmic exploration of the life of these uh, outer borough people, you know, was a brief thing that that was that was done in various different ways. So uh, we, we could go on and on forever. I certainly I could go on and on forever. And as I said, a lot of this is is probably me defending the corner of Richard Price. Uh, who's a writer whose books I continue to really, really enjoy. I really, really recommend for anyone interested in uh, a slice of New York City life from a different era, check out Richard Price's book, Lush Life, which I think came out in 2008 or 2009. Brilliant, brilliant book about uh, a changing era in downtown New York. Totally different, but a crime story. Vividly etched characters. Really, really, really good. Uh, huge fan of Richard Price and all of his uh TV work, The Night Of, uh, on and on. I mean, the guy is prolific and has contributed a lot of great uh, books and screenplays and movies over the years. So uh, defending the corner of my guy, Richard Price. Yeah. And as far as you're, we're having a, a little book club moment here, mm -hmm. uh, this um, Can You Dig It by Sean Egan. Yes. I think that just came out in like December. I mean, oh, really? It's brand new. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. It's a really new book. Um, you know, you read a lot more of these kind of behind the scenes, uh, uh, you know, film production books than I do. I find the book on the whole a little bit. Um, this is what Deborah Van Valkenburg had for, you know, uh, midnight lunch on a particular day. Uh, there's a little more detail, actually, than I care for. But I do think that it's still uh as far as I know, it's the, you know, it's the most extensive behind the scenes thing of the Warriors interviewing 
the director and the 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 costume lady and all of the actors it's a really thorough job and if people uh really want to uh find out the way you know more about the way this movie was made i do recommend uh can you dig it i absolutely recommend it as well i think he did a really good job marshalling all of the voices uh it's an oral biography so it's compulsively readable and it has the benefit of you know the 30 40 years after the fact kind of wisdom by all parties concerned. So uh, most notably, as we talked about, uh, Thomas G. Waits kind of looking back on, on a period of bad actor behavior, it, it really in a unsparing lens that's very unusual for us to sort of hear from someone who now says, oh my God, not only did I behave like a complete idiot and a moron and act against my own interests as an actor, but here's what here's what was going on for me and why I did those things. Uh, to hear from Walter Hill, to hear from uh, all of the different cast members, uh, many of whom go back with Walter Hill and went, would go forward with Walter Hill, like James Remar and other actors who you know have had long, long careers. So it is a really good as told to book, and and I think will really deepen your appreciation uh, for the Warriors. It's not one of those Absolutely. books where you'll you'll sort of read it and feel kind of like, oh, I wish I didn't know that. You know, I think learning how the sausage is made sometimes. Uh, maybe doesn't heighten your appreciation, but for me, I think it will really help ground the film and explain it in sort of an interesting way because he did a really good job with all the interviews. Yeah, and as I said before, I think it's a really fascinating story that the what was the end product of the Warriors um, is was a, a product of some of its initial deficiencies. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a fascinating uh, chain of events. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a great reminder, like many, many films are, that what you think you're going to do turns out not to have been the best path forward. And so sometimes what you're forced to adapt to, which in the moment feels like some sort of a failure, uh, ends up being the very thing that saves your cre your creative enterprise uh, and, and maybe gives it an everlasting life, a shelf life, which The Warriors has had. I mean, it's been a very successful video game franchise, graphic novels, as I said. I wouldn't be surprised if this was rebooted in some form or fashion as a piece of IP. It occupies a pretty rarefied space and that I think everyone's aware of it. It has cultural relevance, at least in the catchphrases, some of the visual iconography. It would seem pretty ripe for a reappraisal or a rebooting. And who knows? Maybe this episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast will provide that cathartic spark, as we like to say. Richard, thank you as ever for joining me. I appreciate it. And I can't wait to talk to you again soon about something else. Well, we'll, we'll see uh, You know what other brilliant thing we can come up with. I really enjoyed this conversation. And I really enjoyed the uh, being able to both rescreen and to talk about the Warriors. I'm really fond of it. <laughs>